wrestling fans. This is Al Getz. Happy 2023 to each and every one of you, as this is the first episode of the new year of the Charting the Territories podcast. Joining me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Mr. John Boucher. John, happy 2023 to you. Oh, happy new year, Al. Happy new year and, and happy new year, wrestling fans. 2023, very, very, very exciting. The first first episode of the year. New year. Is it a new, new me? I don't know. Same new me, year, probably. New year, new you. Uh, new, new release date for the podcast. This is coming out on the third Thursday of the month. And as I mentioned on last month's episode, we're going to do this for January, February, and March. And then in April, we're going to move to the second Thursday, and then that will be our permanent home until I, you know, for whatever reason, change my mind again. But I <laughs> wanted to move this uh, closer to the beginning of the month because that's when we release new content. And talking about new stuff, we have a whole new uh, redesigned website now hosted mm -hmm. by GoDaddy. Uh, I guess we can thank Candace Michelle for that. For her uh, commercials for GoDaddy back in the Attitude Era. Never forgot those. But we're oh, now hosted oh. by GoDaddy. But we also have a, a redesigned website and also a new look to the uh, posts we make monthly. Uh, in the past, we covered uh, territories in three-month chunks of time. But starting this year, we're now going to do a year in the life. Where we look at one year in the life of one wrestling territory. And... This is also going to be the first podcast. Well, it's going to be the last podcast episode that focuses on Leroy McGurk's territory because we're going to start switching things up. Over the last couple of years of this podcast, we've covered most of the 1970s up through 1981 and a good chunk of the 1960s for the McGurk territory. So as part of this A Year in the Life, we're going to be looking at the year 1971 for different territories Every month, and this month we started off with Leroy McGurk's territory, but we're literally going to go all over North America over the next year plus where we look at different territories in the year 1971. You can check out the new blog at the same address it's always been at, www.chartingtheterritories.com. We also have a YouTube channel. We put up uh, some a couple of videos every month usually a snippet from the podcast. And also as part of a year in the life, we do what I call an event center and mm -hmm. our YouTube channel. You can just search for charting the territories on YouTube. Also, don't forget, we put some PDF files of our work available on PayHip, which is a neat little uh, site that lets you name your own price or download for free. And that's payhip.com slash charting the territories. And of course, if you want to learn more about not only 1971 in the McGurk territory, but also 1972 and 1973, you can check out the Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana, 1971 to 1973 Wrestling Almanac available on Amazon and also through our site, chartingtheterritories.com. And if you order through the site, you will get an autographed copy plus a four by six photo of one of the stars of the territory in the early 1970s. That's a lot. I just plugged a lot, John. That's a lot of plugs. It's you know what I I I, uh, I I'm so excited whenever I go look at at books, whether it's wrestling books or not wrestling books. Like you get your book recommended to me almost every time I log on to Amazon via via the web or via the mobile app. So some some algorithm somewhere is the, working in your favor. That, well, well, 
Why do you think they call it an algorithm? <laughs> John, yeah. I, I, I love a good bounty angle in pro wrestling. Oh, we all do. Yes, me too. And with that in mind, if you follow me on Twitter, you might have noticed earlier this month, I actually put up a bounty. And this is a very real $1,000 bounty. The one minor catch is the $1,000 will be paid in the form of a donation to a nonprofit organization, ideally a food bank or some other similar type of organization. And to anyone that is able to collect this bounty or to the one person that is able to collect this bounty, it can be a food bank or nonprofit near where you live or perhaps near and dear to you personally. But the bounty is for information showing that Lira McGurk's territory was actually referred to as tri-state or tri-states prior to 1979. I think you and I have talked about this in the past. Oh, yeah. I don't believe it was actually ever called that until the split between McGurk and Watts in September 1979. And then somehow the name got retconned uh, similar to how people will refer to the Ghoulist territory as Memphis, even though Memphis was never really a key city in the days that Ghoulist ran the entire state. Really, Nashville, Chattanooga, and even Birmingham, Alabama seemed to be his three key cities for most of his existence, even when he was working with Jarrett. So if anyone has any evidence, this is something in print video, audio, anything that was produced slash published before September 1979 that uses the term tri-state or tri-states in reference to Lira McGurk's territory, hit me up on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling and show it to me, and you just might get $1,000 donated to a charity that's near and dear to you. You know, I asked... Uh, Tim Hornbaker about this. And, and he said that as he talked with uh, some of the more well-known historians uh, over the years, they all adopted a sort of shorthand uh, that they, for the most part, developed themselves to name these territories because so many of them were named championship wrestling yeah, or all-star exactly. wrestling. And so that's probably the origin of Tri-State. And perhaps they saw that it was called Tri-State after 79 and said, all right, well, let's just use that shorthand. Of course, Mid-Atlantic was not called Mid-Atlantic until 1973. Yep. Yet we might, you know, if we're talking about something that happened in the Carolinas in the 60s, we might call it Mid-Atlantic and it's not wrong to do so. Yep. Same thing goes with uh, Fritz von Erich's territory. The name World Class didn't come around until the early 80s, but he uh, had a good 15 years before that running the territory where I think it was called big time wrestling. Yeah. But well, there were probably three or four big time wrestlings yeah, running. Because there's, <laughs> because there's at least three, there would have been uh, East Texas, Detroit and Northern California. Again, I think uh, Stu, I think also uh, was big time wrestling at one point too. Uh, I, I don't know went, if that was, it went from Klondike to something to stampede. Wildcat wrestling. Wildcat too, I think. at some point. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, because they underwent name changes and because 
in the forward-facing, you know, name of the promotion was always generic. They adopted this sort of naming convention. But one of the things that that sort of irked me is there are a few websites and sources and even uh, Tales from the Territories where they explicitly claim the territory was called Tri-State for decades or for, you know, a long period of time. And to anyone who believes that, show me proof. And you will get $1,000 donated to a charity, a a legitimate 401k nonprofit organization, ideally a food bank or something similar of your choice. And this offer does expire on January 31st. Yeah, I, I, speaking of the territories, I recall conversations that I had with nearly every story editor on that show about explaining that the, the, the current quote unquote branding of most of these territories was for the most part not how they were referred to at that time by the fans, mostly because if you were a wrestling fan in 1971, it was, it was the wrestling, it was wrestling or whatever the name of the TV show. Yeah. So there was, and there wasn't really a nerd, a need to discern between territories because a large portion portion of the fans, uh, you know, obviously not including the more voracious magazine readers or the fan club, early smart fans, but for a large portion of the fans, the wrestling that they saw on TV was the only wrestling they knew existed. So there was no need to, yeah. if you lived in LA, it was just wrestling. It wasn't, you know, we call it NWA Hollywood, you know, it was just, it was just wrestling. Right. Uh, even, even if there's a vague knowledge that there's a world heavyweight champion that goes around from place to place, you're still, you're, if it's out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. And so if yep. you don't see it, you're not aware of it. And the, the territories TV programs did a good job of sort of straddling the line where they, where they're, a regional product, but they also make you believe that you are seeing the best wrestlers in the world. They're not saying this is the only wrestling in the world, but you believe that your, what you see on TV and what you're going to see in your local arena is top notch quality, which is why I talk with many uh, fans from days of yore who, you know, lived in, let's say Missouri uh, or I in Iowa who, to them, Central States was was the best wrestler the best. there because yeah. that's all they knew. And people like us who saw wrestling from all over the place can look at Bob Brown versus Rufus R. Jones in the mid-80s <laughs> and understand that this is not top-notch. But to a fan living there at that time, that's all they knew. Yep. Yep. And to a fan, you know, so yeah, this is... uh this is how it was. So this is the bounty. And it, you have until January 31st to uh, present to me any evidence. And honestly, even if you can provide some evidence that it was referred to by that name colloquially prior to 1979, mm-hmm. I'll hear you out. Maybe a partial ban or something like that. <laughs> uh, again, you know, because like when the wrestlers are talking to one another, if they say, yeah, I just finished up in Florida and now I'm going to Oklahoma. Would they have said... I've I'm finishing up in Florida, and now I'm going to go to Tri-State, for example. If there's anything, any evidence of that, shoot it my way, and we'll see. Yeah, uh, we also this month are going to do all our regular features, including John plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling trivia. This month I learned, and the segment we always start off with, which has been renamed. Hmm. Uh, back in November, I tweeted out something about how you can listen to the latest episode when you're driving to your Thanksgiving dinner. And our friend Sparks responded that he didn't think it was great to 
uh, when he's in the car with his six-year-old to have him hear the name of our eBay segment. Ah. So I've decided to clean it up a little bit. And now the segment we are about to get into is Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. PG era. We've entered the PG era of the, of the show. We have. I, Vince, Vince came <laughs> back and now we're, we're back to PG. I guess that's how it works. But this is stuff John bought me off eBay. Remember, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 buying me stuff off eBay. Uh, we also, if you follow our YouTube channel, we, you can see me do a live unboxing of this month's item. I'll also put it out on Twitter. But this month, John bought me a CD and a DVD. And the DVD and the CD are I Like to Hurt People, mm -hmm. the classic movie featuring the chic, Andre, Dusty, a whole lot more. And the CD is, I guess it's the soundtrack to I Like to Hurt People, and it's by Bob Finnegan and the Battle Royal. Is he any relation to, uh, uh, what was the ECW ref? Wasn't oh, there a Finnegan? God. Oh God, I forget his name. Yeah, flanking on it. Something Finnegan. Maybe yeah. he's maybe they're related. But this uh, this promises fifteen tracks of wrestling gold, and half of them, well, not half because fifteen is an odd number, but eight of them are unplugged versions Ooh. of songs, including the Ballad of the Fighting Funks, Ooh. Bulldog Blues, and Heather's theme. Now, oh, John, who's Heather in this? That's, that's got to be Heather Feather, right? That is Heather Feather, yes. Nice. Uh, and then on the, uh, I guess, the, the full version, the electrified versions, <laughs> there is the Ballad of Bobo Brazil, mm. Dick the Bruiser Boogie, and the American Dream, among other tracks. So, John, talk yeah. a little bit about this movie, because believe it or not, I have never seen this movie. Oh, wow. I think yeah. you'll get a kick out of it. Um, so I love this movie. I love this. Uh, the same way I, I, I love like the wrestling queen, if you've seen that. Um, I've seen clips of that. It, it's all you really need to see. But the, most of this footage was shot, I believe, in, in, in the mid-70s. But the movie didn't actually come out until, I think, 84 or 85. I mean, during the, right in the middle of the 80s wrestling boom. And it's like amazing how much wrestling would have changed from when this was filmed <laughs> when it came out, I think the original plan for this movie was that it was supposed to be a horror movie called Ringside. And that had proved either logistically or budgetarily not feasible. So they decided to go in the direction of a documentary. And then it just got shelved for a while. And then later on, if I recall correctly, they went to try to get funding from New World Video, I think. Or whoever put this out, they had them shoot uh, additional footage with the with the shot the stop the chic stuff. So that adds that sort of flavor to it. So if you when you watch this, if it seems like it's two or three different movies put together to make one there's a reason cohesive thing. There's a reason for that. And it's funny because I actually have a a seven inch record, a promotional forty five for the abandoned ringside movie that has the song I like to hurt people along with Dick the Bruiser Boogie 
the American Dream and Andre the Giant on it. It's promoted as you know for the for the motion picture ringside by Savage Cinema. So sort of a little interesting little fact. And I also have another bootleg CD with a different track listing from from your CD apparently because I only have twelve songs. So I'm gonna have to buy well, this for myself. There's a couple. For the there's a couple of there are at least two tracks that are both. Uh, unplugged and electrified versions. So perhaps there's okay. that's where the duplication occurs. Okay. Yes, uh, Ringside, Andre the Giant, and I Like to Hurt People uh, all have two versions on this CD. So perhaps that's yeah. where the uh, discrepancy is. I know there's a couple of clips and a trailer on YouTube, so we'll put t- together some some links to those, maybe put them in a playlist and put them on our YouTube channel. If you want to check it out, I, I'll, uh, I'll fire up the CD. I think my DVD player also plays music CDs. If not, I don't have any other way of listening to this, but I'll try and get together uh, some, some snippets from some of the songs and we can listen to them next month. But for now, we've got the DVD and the CD soundtrack, including several unplugged selections for... <laughs> The movie filmed in the 70s and released in the 80s, <laughs> I Like to Hurt People. Yes. Speaking of the 70s, as I mentioned earlier, we're now shifting things. I always, at the start of every calendar year, I've always used that as a time to introduce new stats or, or do things in a different way. And I think I went way overboard this time around because now every month we're going to look at one year in the life of one territory. And for at least the next year, and probably more than that, we're going to focus on the year 1971. Uh, I don't think we're going to cover every single territory in the U.S. and Canada, but my goal is to cover as many of them as possible. And first up is the Leroy McGurk Territory, operating out of Oklahoma and Louisiana. That was not called Tri-State or Tri-States at the time. But I've put together... um, a really ex- comprehensive document. And uh, you can see this on the blog, but the, the main thing is we actually have what the kids today call an infographic, but what I'm calling a fact sheet. And it's just sort of a one-page deal. You can also, if you go to payhip.com slash charting the territories, you can get the whole blog post as a PDF and it includes a full color, full page version of this fact sheet. But it includes a map of the territory showing you the towns they ran regularly, a sample week, uh, a quick list of the top wrestlers, top teams, top feuds, but also uh, what I call some booking statistics, where we look at the number of title changes, the number of turns, and a stat called roster turnover that lets you get a feel for the booking philosophy of the territory. Was it like the WWWF where they ran maybe one turn every few years and ran one, you know, one or two big angles on TV a year? Or a place like the AWA or Mid-Atlantic where most of the crew homesteaded and stayed there for a long time? Or was it a place like the Ghoulist Territory or Gulf Coast where you have titles changing hands literally every week, wrestlers turning constantly, and all sorts of wrestlers going in and out week after week? So we're going to use these booking stats to look at that. We also look at the size of the crew, the average number of wrestlers in the territory at any given time, and how they're broken up based on spot rating. So how many of them are main eventers, how many are upper mid-carders, how many are mid-carders, how many are preliminary wrestlers, 
And then we're doing something really cool. For the first time, I'm going to incorporate results into my research, but not in the way you might think. Instead of looking at wrestlers' win-loss records, we're looking at results to see how often baby faces won versus how often heels won versus how often the matches were draws, be it time limit draw, double DQ, no contests, you know, whatever. And we're breaking it down not only for the territory as a whole during the year, but by position on the card. So was it different for main events or upper mid cards or mid cards or prelims? And I I think we're going to see some really interesting things uh, when we look at it this way. For example, for Leroy McGurk's territory, the babyface was much more likely to win the main events. Uh, I believe 60, like two thirds of the time, the babyface had their hand raised in the main event, whereas only 25% of the time, the heel had their hand raised. And earlier in the cards, it's a much different story. The babyfaces aren't winning as often. And in fact, in the mid cards, the heels win more often than the babyfaces. So, John, why do you think that might be? Well, I think that's how you build to the your 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 your, your, your build your feuds, basically, right? Right. Well, <laughs> so if we understand that for many territories, the top baby faces were usually homesteaders. Think Eddie Graham, Stu Hart uh, in McGurk's territory, Watts and Hodge. Yep. They're there for a long period of time. They've already been built up and made main eventers. And they generally face what I call a rotating rogues gallery of heels. Those heels need to be built up by wins for lower on the cards. They're gradually built up by winning week after week in succession against theoretically more difficult opposition until they get to Watts or Hodge or Eddie Graham or Lawler or whoever. So that's why this territory looks that way. But I think we're going to find different territories have different philosophies. There's a, the, a notion of heel territories versus babyface territories. And perhaps looking at the results this way will give us a little more insight into that. And this infographic, this fact sheet was designed by Nick Bond, who uh, works for The Ringer. Uh, but he did an amazing job with this, and I really could not have done this without him. I had a vision in my head of how it was going to look like, and he absolutely nailed it uh, and did a great job with it. We also have David Gibb, who is a writer. In fact, uh, last year on the podcast, John, we reviewed his book, How to Ace Your Comeback. Oh, yeah. And I've enlisted him to write a couple of wrestler profiles. Uh, one of the things I'm not great at is doing bios for the wrestlers. Um, just because even if, you know, just keep them short, I don't know what to include. What do you what do you say for someone like Dusty Rhodes that people aren't already going to know? <laughs> do we even what do you say about Grizzly Smith or Bob Sweetan? And and are we doing ourselves justice if we leave out the things I don't want to talk about? Yeah. So I, I really don't know how to do that. So we've done two things with the year in the life. First, we have links to by um bios usually in the form of obituaries that come from Slam Wrestling. Uh, Greg Oliver has done an amazing job compiling really incredible biographies and obituaries for many of these wrestlers. So instead of me trying to recreate the wheel, we've just linked to his site for many of these wrestlers. But also David Gibb is going to write for many months profiles of one or two wrestlers, which discuss 
uh, sort of the background of what they were doing before they came to the territory in the specific year we're covering, and then what they did while they were here. It's a way of taking my stats and my data and my charts and turning it into words. Uh, and this month, you can learn more about Dr. X and about the tag team of Billy Red Lions and Tom Jones in the words of a real actual writer, David Gibb, on the blog. Yeah, great work uh, by both David Gibbs' old synopses of these guys are great. And I just love, love, absolutely love, I can't say love enough, the look of the new blog, the 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 fact sheet, like you said, it just looks phenomenal. And if you haven't been to the blog in the last month, please go. There's it's also now a a, a mailing list that you can sign up yeah, for. Yeah, there's a mailing the, list. Uh, you can uh, there's a link to order the book. Uh, much easier than the way I had it on the old site. It's just it looks a lot nicer and it's laid out a lot better. We also do still have links to the old blog posts and the old podcast archives, but it's just a much sleeker look and a lot more information. Uh, in addition to listing the feuds by FLW score, we also, for some of the top wrestlers in the territory during the year, we list their feuds chronologically. So you can sort of see their arc. You can see Dusty Rhodes coming to the territory in April, moving his way up the cards, and his first feuds are with Grizzly Smith and Bill Watts. From there, he moves on to a feud with the Spoiler, and that's a unique heel versus heel feud. Um, and then he resumes his feud with Bill Watts. He also feuds with Dale Lewis. And then as he's finishing up, he feuds with Ivan Putsky. So when you lay it out chronologically, it really gives you a, a unique look at what I call the wrestler's arc in the territory during the year. We also look at title histories in a new way. We, uh, again, graph it out chronologically. So you can see how long each wrestler held the title and where this will come into play is from what I previously mentioned about babyface territories and heel territories. Those are usually in reference to how long a period of time heels or babyfaces held titles. Obviously, with the title switching, it always goes from a babyface to a heel to a babyface to a heel. So there's going to be an even number of championship reigns of babyfaces and heels. But the length of those reigns might give us some new information uh, about the territory and, and what their modus operandi was. We also have a section I call Taking Attendance where we look at attendance figures, whatever we have. Uh, for most territories, we're not going to have a lot, but we've got some. And for Leroy's territory in 1971, we have 18 attendance figures for shows in Chalmette, which was their weekly card in the New Orleans market. Their average attendance for those cards was 2,389. And the figures ranged from... 12.45 to 36.45. So there's a pretty big spread. We also have a handful of attendance figures for other shows, many of which are for when Dory Funk Jr. came to the territory. So you can see how he drew for many of his title defenses. And then the final section is a link to how show lineups and results. In the past, I printed the advertised lineups on the blog, but I now have shared all my newspaper clippings with WrestlingData.com. And 
all the house show lineups and results for over 800 house shows in the McGurk territory in 1971 are mm-hmm. now available on wrestlingdata.com. Um, before I gave them my clippings, they had, I think, just over 200 for the year. And now they have over 800. And I'm going oh, to wow. do that for every territory we cover uh, so that eventually wrestlingdata.com will become the most comprehensive and complete source for wrestling results from the territorial era you can find on the interwebs. Wow. I have a question about this. Maybe okay. this might be of interest to some of our, our listeners who are into the same thing. When you uh, submit uh, these either results or uh, cards un- that have been undiscovered to this point to wrestling data, how does one go about doing that? Do you just have your, your, your like say if I had a program that is not on there, I would just, what I would do a scan of the, of the program and say, here this is. Or how does that, is it just that simple or is it more complicated Um, than that? In my case, I've developed a relationship with one of the editors for the site. And so I literally just, I I put all my clips uh, on a, on the cloud and give him a link to it. Um, Okay, cool, cool. I'm on their site right now. I'm looking to see if there's an email address or a submit item. I don't see it. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the lay person there's, there's a contact us ah, link. Okay. Let's see if that provides any, um, uh, n- nothing. Yeah. Nothing as far as a specific, you know, if you have new, you know, cards, we don't click here. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. Uh, I so I don't know. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I was just curious. I, I, you know, I think really, I think they really don't accept one-off submissions. I think they're really looking for people that that might have collections of things on map in mass. Gotcha, gotcha, and, gotcha. And might look to do it that way as opposed to oh, well, the, but I guess current stuff, you know, they've got to get it from somewhere. True. So I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's a very long. Long-winded way of me saying I have no freaking idea, John. Quit bothering me with this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious. I have like, oh, I've got this random card from the 1967 in the Scranton Catholic right. Youth Center with the, the Bruno match. That's not anywhere, you know. Uh, what did, do you guys want this? Probably not. If it's the only thing I have, that's, oh, uh, that's maybe. I, you know, I would think they want it, but at the same time, they'd love it if you were able to take the time to find all of the ones you had that they didn't and, gotcha. you know, get them to them in one felled swoop. Yeah. That there might you go. Be a better tack. Uh, but so, and we always, when we cover these territories on the podcast, we do a quick rundown of the roster. We're now looking at all the wrestlers that were in the territory for a whole year, as opposed to just a three month period. So we won't cover it as in depth, but the main eventers in the territory for 1971, and these are wrestlers who had a spot rating of 0.80 or above. On the babyface side, you have Bill Watts, Danny Hodge, Grizzly Smith, Luke Brown, Tom Jones, Billy Red Lions, and Sputnik Monroe. Sputnik had turned babyface late in 1970. In fact, in early 71, there's still a few towns where I guess the turn hadn't aired, and he's still working as a heel for like one or two weeks in huh. a few towns in the territory in January before he's a babyface throughout. Sputnik is a babyface is something you don't see very often. Hmm. But uh, like most wrestlers, once you've established yourself as a heel, 
it's real easy to become a babyface because you can do the same stuff you did as a heel, but now that you're a good guy and you're doing it against bad guys, the fans will cheer for you. Oh, yeah. So that, that's always nice. Uh, one, one heel who probably could not have uh, been able to turn babyface in this territory was Waldo Von Erich. <laughs> Other heels were the spoiler, and this, of course, was the spoiler, Don Jardine, Dusty Rhodes, Carl Von Brauner, the Hollywood Blondes of Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown, Dr. X, and Rip Kirby. Dr. X in this territory was Jim Osborne, and Rip Kirby is better known as Roger Kirby. So Waldo Von Erich, he's the other Von Erich. I think to most mm-hmm. fans of, of our age and our era and later, we think of Fritz first when we talk about that generation of Von Erichs and Waldo second. But Waldo was a big star in uh, Canada and the Northeast for many, many, many years. And as always, John, you've curated a playlist of a handful of Waldo Von Erich matches. So let's yeah. see what you got. Uh, the first one I, I, I like to talk about is from uh, Australia. I'm not 100% sure of the year. I want to say 73 because Big Bad John is here. And I think Big Bad John was there in 73. And that's about it. But I'm not I'm not betting the farm on it. Um the black and white WCW Australia TV footage that I that I love. Uh, Waldo's look here is great. He's got the, the black singlet and he's got like a long black glove that goes up to his elbow. I don't know if there's another name for that type of thing that's more appropriate and descriptive. But it's like a long black glove that goes all like the way. Like what up women form. would wear in the fancy ball ballroom outfits. Yes, but like more evil. Okay, but evil. I, yeah. Uh, you don't know that. You don't know the women I know, John. <laughs> Um, they, you know, it looks so menacing, you know, it's like the, uh, uh, and right off the bat, the commentator, Mike, Mike Cleary, I think his name is like an ex rugby guy. Uh, so there's only, only eight minutes left in the show. So he's setting us up, setting us up here. Uh, for the first two minutes, it's like just a mess. Like everybody's in the ring, all four guys in the ring, the referee who Cleary always refers to him as Wallaby Bob, which, uh, has no control. Uh, Abdullah and Waldo, Pummeling, Lewin, and Arian. Eventually, Lewin gets a bit of a comeback here, gets the upper hand, tags out to Arian. Waldo regains control, working on the arm. Um, I love the, the double teaming here between Waldo, with Waldo and Abdullah. Waldo's laying down on top of Arian while he's got him like a hammerlock, and he'll lift his foot in the air, and Abdullah will, will push it up giving you know ostensibly giving uh waldo a little more leverage it's just so uh, it's so funny seeing abdullah do sneaky heel tag team stuff as opposed to just being abdullah stabbing and bleeding and doing the karate chop and they're doing like abdullah and waldo are doing these like quick tags in and out of the ring like they're freaking uh, rip hawk and swede hansen it's like a bizarro universe for about two <laughs> minutes in this match yeah? uh aaron gets to lewin makes a tag lewin cleans house abdullah comes in Heels get control. Lewin ends up outside. Big Bad John runs him into the ring post. Lewin is dazed and Walt back in the ring somehow. And Lewin's up against the ropes. And Mike Cleary says Lodo, uh, Waldo's hitting him with a, a loaded glove now. So now the glove is loaded. Uh, out of nowhere, Lewin makes a comeback. All four guys in the ring. Lewin's got a sleeper on Abdullah, and we're out of time. Show goes off the air. It's almost like an episode of Georgia TV or you know, or Crockett TV in, right. in the eighties. We're out of time. We got to go. 
but it's a great like, little TV match thing. And it's great seeing young, young Abdullah in Wal- the ring. Waldo might have been the most sane person in that match. Might have been like <laughs> yeah. the least. Obviously, at this point, Lewin, I think, is still a, a clear cut, mostly clear cut babyface. But, uh, yeah. you know, g- given what Ariane and Lewin did later, you know, later on, Waldo is yeah. like like the the nice guy of this bunch. <laughs> yep. Um, and actually, the uh, Waldo versus Gene Dubois. Let's just talk about this one really quickly. It's just Gene Dubois, Dave, Dave, also known as Dave McKigney, the Canadian wild man, the, the bear guy, the bear, the bear guy, the bear trainer, <laughs> the bear trainer. He's he's a terrible Ted's owner. Um, and this is just a, a you know like a ten minute TV match. It's kind of a surprise finish with you think it's going to be a count out with Dubois out of the ring all messed up, but it ends up being a disqualification for for Waldo. Not, nothing 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 very exciting here. Um, this next match I love uh, Waldo von Erich versus Chief J Strongbow at the Garden, April seventy five. Love 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 this match. Uh, don't love the Nazi salute during the introduction, but uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, it's, it's Waldo attacks Chief J Strongbow before the bell. Absolutely pummels him, kicking the crap out of him, punching him. Strongbow doesn't even have his headdress off until it flies off when Waldo whips him into the corner. And Strongbow takes a pretty crazy bump for Chief J Strongbow bumps over the top rope into the floor and gets counted out. Um, again, Waldo, Waldo does some unfortunate saluting. And San Martino comes out of the locker room to check on Strongbow, and they're all like out there trying to figure out what's going on. And Bruno, along with like a legitimate New York City cop and just two other random guys at ringside, carry Strongbow back to the locker room. Um, there's no stretcher. They just carry him, like carry his limp body back there. And they announce Waldo as the winner after 39 seconds. I love wow. this match. Um, I, I, you know, and I, I could see this match happening today and people crapping all into the, the outrage on Twitter, but I could, this is just a great way to put him over as, you know, guys, guys like, like Putsky and Strongbow were in that, in that role, like the, the gatekeepers, the San Martino to, to see those guys get absolutely destroyed like this. Right. It, it's one thing for them to put up a valiant effort and lose, uh, yeah. but to get positively obliterated from the get go. Yeah. Uh, that's really different. And, and Waldo, the, 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 the one thing you'll probably hear about Waldo, if you look into him even a little bit, is that how Bruno always puts him over as one of his favorite guys to work with, such a great opponent. And he had probably four or five different runs with Bruno over there. Like in the early sixties, he had a run where they had their famous, like it was like hour and a half match, the curfew at the garden, so he had the early 60s run, he had like the later 60s run, run in 72, 73, I think also. And then this was so like four separate big main event runs with 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 Bruno, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, uh, and lastly, not a match, but this is kind of interesting. It's, it's Waldo and Bret Hart on off the record with Michael Landsberg in 1998. Super interesting for a couple of reasons. Talk about him really quickly. This is from Bret's early in WCWC days, and he's talking about how happy he is in WCW. He's talking about that for 45 minutes of in itself, but watch it, you'll see. Um, and also, Landsberg sort of interviews Waldo as if it's like a kayfabe interview, referring to him as, you know, part of the Von Erich family and referring to his departed brother, Fritz. Um, Landsberg also plays a clip of Waldo doing the Nazi salute, and all three guys have this 
dialogue about it. Waldo and Brett have a little back and forth where Waldo kneels on the mat. He's like, well, Brett, you wrestled in this angle where you were against the Americans. And Brett's like, well, I don't want to be labeled a racist, Waldo. And it's, it's really interesting hearing these guys have this dialogue, sort of defend these gimmicks and angles. Uh, and later on, Waldo puts Landsberg in a, in a cobra clutch and Brett puts him in a cross-face chicken. Like, this is an interesting segment, especially if you're a fan of of Bret Hart. And I always like these Michael Landsberg off the records. They're really interesting to go yeah. watch like they're, a time capsule of not the late the 90s. Typical, they're not the typical wrestler interviews, wrestler segments uh, yeah. that, that you normally see. So yeah, we will put all those uh, clips, uh, all those that YouTube footage together as a playlist on our YouTube channel. So be sure to check out the Charting the Territories YouTube channel. Uh, real quickly, uh, and this is something that you might not be able to cover quickly, but but try. Uh, you had a picture in your archives, and we'll put this picture up on Twitter. And by noticing a key element, uh, uh, something that was on the wall of the picture, you were then able to do some detective work to figure out exactly what match this almost certainly was from. Because it's literally just a picture of, of Waldo, I think, on his way to the ring. Uh, yeah. with no context as to where it was, when it was, or who his opponent was. But because of something you saw on the wall behind Waldo, you might have been able to solve it. Yeah. Um, there's a little, what looks, appear to me, the, uh, a map of Illinois in the background. Um, and there's also the, the it's got one of, those, one of those old Polaroids. It's not a professional photo, like a little owl photo or anything like that. Right. It's a little instamatic photo. And December 69 on the side, which is usually, that usually indicates when the film was processed or developed, not when the photo was taken, but I couldn't find no record of Waldo wrestling in Illinois in 69 on any of the results sites. Uh, but I did find a newspaper ad for him main eventing against a Sabu at a, at a grade school gym in Waverly, Illinois in March of 69. And this photo definitely looks like it could be a, a, uh, a grade school gym. You got the bleachers and, this, and the thing. And, the, and this Sabu, of course, was Jose Gonzalez. Jose Gonzalez. I and mean, he was wrestling around there at the time, WWA. Uh, yeah, he was working Central for Dick the Bruiser. And Waverly was a town that Mushnick ran occasionally uh, uh -huh. the weekend he would run St. Louis. Which is interesting because Waldo is in St. Louis, listed as being in St. Louis uh, on March 8th. 1969 for a TV taping, which could have been when it was just broadcast or when it was recorded. Either way, doing a double shot is within reason because it's only like an hour and a half away. Right. Um, and the, they, so. they did the they I know they did the house show St. Louis, the big St. Louis house show would have been Friday nights. And then TV was either Saturday or Sunday in the morning, in the late morning. So huh, this this yeah. all checks out uh, that Waldo could have been in for the weekend uh, and worked St. Louis and then worked uh, TV and Waverly or perhaps Waverly and then TV the next morning. So okay. that all checks out. And that might be the only time Waldo Von Erich wrestled in the state of Illinois. Yeah. There's Maybe. also uh, an obituary we have from a website called McLean's, which is McLean's, John, is Canada's premier current affairs magazine. Oh, I had no idea. I didn't know that. But there's a, a really nice obituary on Waldo Von Erich, real name Walter Paul Sieber, that has a lot of things that you might not know about. So, John, anything stand out to you in this obituary? 
couple of quick things. Like I, I love hearing about these guys after wrestling, and it talks about him uh, after retiring, focusing on his inventions. Like he 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 invented something called the Inver chair. The Inver chair. Uh, this is that's the thing. It's like the I guess it, it's like a gravity chair where you lay back, strap yourself in, and then it flips upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it goes uh, by a bunch of names now, but apparently in 1980, he uh, patented this thing. Yeah. And it's like he it talks about him like because he had back pain just from years of wrestling. Uh, And, you know, they just, you know, it it talks about his daughter seeing him just like hanging upside down in the basement, you know, (laughs) and he was working on something else. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's really going to go into description, but it's described as a stretching machine called the post which sounds almost like a torture device that sounds like uh, something Stu, Stu would have in his basement <laughs> hey uh come down here i've got the post i for got you. the post uh, for you yeah uh, uh uh and it talks about his wife a little bit too like they married in 59 and divorced in 88 so they're all married so don't be fascinated by couples that are married 30 years and get divorced but remain good friends uh, and john um, you're still a newlywed so you're so you're yeah. still fascinated by this Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Leave that at that. Um, <laughs> now, one of the things I found interesting, um, in 1971 in McGurk's territory, one of the biggest feuds was uh, Bill Watts and Billy Red Lions versus Waldo and Carl Von Brauner. And in this obituary, it mentions that shortly before uh, Waldo passed away, he was uh, at the Freeport Health Center in Kitchener, Ontario, and he ran into Billy Red Lions. And not long after they met uh, this meeting, Lyons passed away. And then the day after that, Waldo took a nasty fall from which he never recovered and passed away like less than two weeks later. Yeah. So it's neat that here we're talking about something that happened in 1971. And then uh, 38 years later, those two men crossed paths both uh, not knowing it at the time, although perhaps uh, lions did, were uh, near the end of their days on this uh, on this mortal coil, and they got the chance to catch up one last time. Yeah, it's a little sweet, sweet and sad ending to that to the article. Yeah, yeah. We'll also post a Q and A uh, that was done by Slam Wrestling. Uh, a lot of this is done in character. And John, I, I, I'm just going to say that one of the things that stuck out to me, they were talking about an angle that he did with Dominic DiNucci, which I guess would have been for, Pe- for uh, Pedro Martinez, uh, where I guess DiNucci had been injured. Uh, and they said it was, I don't know if this is real or not, but they said it was due to a, uh, an accident he had while mowing his lawn. And so while he's out, uh, Waldo shows up on TV and says he's going to give him a sympathy present because he feels bad for Danucci for being hurt. And he gives him a package of spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're talking about things that imagine if the outrage, if they did that nowadays, you're talking, uh, yeah. you're talking about the, the Jay Strongbow squash. Imagine if they did something like that today in wrestling. Yeah. I think he used to call Danucci a spaghetti bender. Yeah. In promos. So, yeah, a whole different time. But, John, I, I want to close up our talk about Waldo with a question for you. Oh. Focusing solely on their in-ring career on a worldwide or North American-wide basis, who would you say was the bigger star between Waldo and Fritz? On a worldwide basis? Hmm. <sighs> I mean, Fritz has the name, you know, 
And he, but, it, but, it, but it, how much of that name is due to his non in ring yeah. career? It, that, that's that's yeah. where I'm getting. I think to people, again, to people our age and younger, Fritz is the more recognizable name and is the bigger name in wrestling as a whole. But I think if you look at their in-ring career, the places they went and the things they did and, and the length of their career, I'm tempted to, to tilt it towards Waldo. That's yeah, I mean, Waldo is special. It's, if you just look at Waldo's time in the Northeast alone, yeah, that's, you said that's, four, that's four, about four different four runs. runs. Yeah, like around the horn and then some <laughs> with, with, with Bruno. Uh, that's, that's very impressive. Um, yeah, it's 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 on a worldwide base. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I I I'm the more I think about it here on the spot, I'd probably go with Waldo. It sounds it would sound crazy out of context to say that to someone, but it it does make sense. Like knowing what you know, taking all like, of that against like Christopher Cross once sang, "I know it's crazy, <laughs> but it's true." <laughs> Oh, Christopher Cross. Got to love some Christopher Cross. Well, so that wraps up our discussion of Waldo Von Erich, one of the main eventers in Leroy McGurk's territory in 1971. He was finishing up his run in 1971. He had got gotten there early, earlier in 1970, had was pushed up to the cards, and then him and Carl Von Brauner were main eventers for the first three months of 1971 until they finished up. I think Waldo lost some loser leave town matches on the way out. And he actually had the highest average weekly spot rating of all the wrestlers in the territory in 1971, even higher than Watts. And again, a lot of that is because he's only there for a short period of time. And by the time the year begins, he's established as a main eventer and he's doing those major stipulation matches on the way out. So that sort of explains why he's got the highest spot rating. Of course, because Watts was in the territory longer, he's a, a bigger star to fans of the territory. Yeah. So, John, uh, is your thinking cap on? It is. It is. Okay, good. Because uh, it's time for... Oh, it's time. to play john plays gordon soley's championship wrestling trivia now last month you got some extra credit so you actually have one uh, you know bonus point that i guess you can use if you get one of these wrong we'll say you got it right fantastic so the first question from gordon soley's championship wrestling trivia game who defeated pedro morales for the wwf interesting that they call it wwf World Heavyweight Championship by using his illegal heart punch. The uh, Stan Stasiak? That is correct. All right, one for one. This one tests your knowledge of wrestling moves slash holds. Okay. You have a waist cinch on your opponent while you stand behind him. Your opponent reverses the move. What is this called? Is that a standing switch? Ooh, yes, two for two. Nice. This one, this one is a little tricky. I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little guidance. Who was the winner 
of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Editor's Award in 1984. Editor's Award. Yes, the Editor's Award later became known as the Stanley Weston Award and recognized lifetime achievement. It was often awarded to someone who had passed away during the year. In 1983, it was the Grand Wizard. In 1985, it was Dan Shockett. So who was the winner of this award in 1984? We have a timer on this. Uh, we don't have a timer. Let's see what you take. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, it's, uh, if if it's someone that passed away during the year, perhaps David perhaps Von Erich. heaven needed needed a champion. David Von Erich, and yeah. you got it even before I was giving you that hint. Yeah. You are correct, David <laughs> Von going Erich. Through, going through the list in my head. Yeah, three uh, for three. Now okay. this one. This is a true-false question, and just like last month's true-false question, it assumes that there's an actual official rule book by, from the <laughs> National Wrestling Alliance, which there is not. Okay. True or false? Death matches are sanctioned by the NWA. I'll go with... See, I don't know if this, I'm, I'm probably overthinking this. I'm going to go with no. You're going to go with false? False. Correct. Correct. Well, according to this, according to Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia game, the answer is false. But we all know there's no such thing. Uh, I do know in McGurk's territory, and I think 76, they did an angle where they announced the NWA was uh, going to ban the Texas death match. Oh, wow. And the reason they did this is they could milk... Uh, a couple of months worth of big houses by advertising Texas death matches. And then each time they say, this is the last one you'll ever get to see before the NWA bans it. Huh. That's cool. Now, of that's course, funny. that didn't last very long and they just sort of brought them back. And at one point, truly after the ban, they would build things. Uh, I think when Akbar was feuding with someone, they would build them as Arabian death matches. Huh. So since it's not a Texas death match, they're allowed yeah, to have it. Yep. Yep. Always, yep. always a loophole. When it comes to wrestling, but wow, you didn't even use your uh, your bank bonus point. You went four for four for the second month in a row. Good job. Wow. Yeah, like I'm on a hitting streak here. I feel like freaking Joe DiMaggio over here. You are you are a main eventer at uh, Gordon Soley's <laughs> Championship Wrestling Trivia, just like Waldo Von Erich was a main eventer in McGurk's territory. Yes. Yes. Now, a little bit further down the cards, we have our upper mid carders. And these are wrestlers whose spot rating is between a 0. .60 and a 0. .80. Uh, running through them on the babyface side, you have Ivan Putsky. Now, Putsky ends up being a main eventer, but he came in in September and his weekly average spot rating for the year includes several weeks of him being pushed up the cards. So when you take it as an average, it falls just below the threshold of a main eventer. He's got a 0.78. But Ivan Putsky, other baby faces are Bob Boyer, Dale Lewis, Ramon Torres, Skandor Akbar, Randy Curtis, and Siki Samara, who's Frankie Hester. On the heel side, we have the great Mephisto. Uh, spoiler number two, also known as Les Wolf. In this territory, he was wrestling as Les Wolf for the first couple of months of the year, and then went under a hood and teamed up with Jardine as spoiler number two. Also, Boris Malenko, Terry Garvin, Chuck Carbo, 
Vic Mueller, Chris Markov, Chad Yacucci, Jerry Miller, Bobby Hart and Lorenzo Parente, the Continental Warriors, Alex the Butcher, I guess uh, was cousins, a distant cousin <laughs> of Abdullah. Uh, but no, this was uh, Louis Sear, uh, a.k.a. Gil Poisson. Ah. Also Bobby Shane and a newcomer to the territory who would spend much of the next decade as a top star here, Bob Sweetan. Um, but one of the one of the wrestlers we mentioned was Chris Markoff. Uh, when I was putting together my book on McGurk's territory from 71 to 73, in the original version, when I went through the roster, I was going to have uh, dates of birth and dates of uh, death for wrestlers that had passed away. I ended up not doing that for two reasons. The first reason was if any wrestler passed away after the book was published, or even in that brief time between my cutoff date and when the book was published, then the book to me instantly becomes outdated. And as a matter of fact, since it was published in October, I do know of one wrestler that has since that was alive at the time it was published that has since passed away. And that was Jose Rivera, AKA hurricane Rivera. But another reason, and perhaps the more important reason, as I compiled my list of dates of birth for all these wrestlers and compared them to, Various sources online, as well as consulted with Chris Swisher and one other person who had a vast collection of these things. There were enough discrepancies that I didn't feel right about, uh, you know, choosing one date for some of these wrestlers where there seemed to be two that came from reliable sources. Uh, and and the same thing goes with with. Uh, when if if wrestlers have passed away, obviously, if someone like Waldo Von Erich or Bill Watts or Danny Hodge, you know, the top superstars, when they pass away, of course, we're going to hear about it. And even some of the wrestlers lower on the cards that had long careers or remained in involved in the community after yeah. their wrestling career ended, if they're Cauliflower Alley Club reunion guys, or if yeah. they went to Gulf Coast reunions or Florida reunions, we'd hear about them. But there are a lot of guys who were just, you know, wrestlers for a few years and may or may not have been using their real names that we may never have heard about if they had passed away. Is every now and then we hear about a wrestler who passed away and, we, and it was a year ago and we're just yeah. finding out now. And there are some wrestlers that were wrestlers for a long time and, and made a living off her wrestling, but weren't big superstars and, and really didn't stay connected to the industry that we really don't know for sure whether they're alive or not. And and Chris Markoff is the person yeah. I, I thought of when I was trying to think of an example, because as far as anyone knows, he has not passed away, but do we know that for a fact? And, and can we prove it? So John, I sort of assigned you to that mission. Find me the head of Chris Markoff or find me, you know, uh, Chris Markoff. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't able to find either. Uh, we, we definitely didn't find anything saying he passed away. We've got a, a small amount of evidence that seems to indicate he is still alive. So, so tell us what you found. Well, I mean, the first thing that I found, uh, first thing I, I did with a guy like Markov is uh, I attack it by looking at all the different aliases. Because um, a lot of times you'll find at with these guys early in their career, uh, at some point, they may have used their their real name, right? 
or something close to their real name. Um, and that's uh, what I got with, with Markov. Early on, he used the name Chris uh, Zelerov, and that's very close to his, uh, his real last name as Zelovarov. Uh, and I was able to find some uh, immigration papers for him showing uh, one is his birth date, which is, I think on Wikipedia, it's listed as uh, 1940. This has his birth date as March 1938 and also shows him uh, being from Greece as opposed to Yugoslavia. Right. Well, which, so being yeah. born in Greece, we don't know anything yeah. necessarily past that, but that he was born yeah. in Greece, yeah. which I don't think anyone has ever uh, attached to him before. So we found something new about Mr. Markov. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from there, doing more stuff uh, with with the real name. And you could find on, even other of his various aliases back then. Like I found something from him on the McGurk territory, just like a, a traffic violation with another one of his 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 other aliases. And when I say alias, I don't mean that in the traditional, you know, there's a, a, a nefariousness that's associated with the word alias, but it's just back then it was very easy. Everything, more things were handwritten, especially with a name like last name, like his, uh, Zella Varov, where you can have the, the V becomes a U or this, someone mistakes a V for a Z. So you can see where that would happen. Um, and I found some business records. I mean, he was a, Looks like he he ran like an apartment complex or run, still runs an apartment complex. Like the LLC was renewed pretty recently as of last year. Yeah, it was renewed um, in September of 2022. So that yep. that is probably the strongest evidence uh, that we can find supporting the uh, fact that at least as of September, he was uh, among the living. <laughs> Interesting that the uh, the LLC uses the name Markov and not... <laughs> Not uh, Zelovarov, which is kind of—I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, um, perhaps he's going to run in New York for uh, Congress. It's <laughs> a good. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, that's not your district, right? No, no, no. Uh, it's uh, that's it is my mom's district. My mom lives in Nassau County, and that uh, is currently her uh, her congressman. Ah, uh, yeah. Yikes! She's none too pleased about it. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> So, uh, so the long and the short, we believe that he's still alive. Um, but, you know, I could see him as someone that if he did pass away, it might not hit wrestling circles right away. Because I don't think he's been active uh, in, in wrestling circles, uh, even though he's using uh, his wrestling name for his LLC. Uh, so, you know, it's just one of those things, one of those weird quirks about pro wrestling. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to uh, other sports like baseball or football where, you know, there's a player's association, a union, uh, someone that keeps track of that. I do know that the CAC does try to keep tabs on all former wrestlers. But again, uh, if the wrestler doesn't, you know, volunteer to participate, to sign up, they may fall through the cracks. Yeah, there's a lot, even guys who are, you know, much more. I don't want to say popular, but like even guy like Rene Goulet when he passed away and he's just in people's minds from the being in the WWF during the boom period and then being like the road agent, always breaking up the fight. You know, it was like a month or two before we even heard about that. Right. Um, and he was, you know, a, a higher profile 
you know, guy than yeah. than let, than, let than alone Markov. you know yeah let alone and you know let alone people even lower on the food chain than Markov you know guys like uh, Frank Diamond or Jim Ledford or um, you know so so many guys that just had cups of coffee in the wrestling yeah. business and, and then moved on and in a lot of those cases we don't even know their real names. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, how how would we find out if they passed away or not? So that's sort of where we're on a Markov. Markov, you know, Markov was a guy. He had a long career. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't have a lot of big main event runs, but he, you know, he made a career in pro wrestling for a long period of time. Early in his career, some of the interesting names he used. He was once Franz von Erich, <laughs> and he was once Naldo. Von Eric. <laughs> so he could have been his own brother tag team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and of course, like so many wrestlers uh, in the 60s and 70s, he uh, got a little carried away uh, with a oh, yeah. with a with a match uh, and ended up getting sued by a couple in Akron, yep. Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, this was I, I I when I first I found another article about this prior to the one I sent you where it just sort of briefly talks about you know him getting a little rough with some some bystanders. But this article really goes into like the whole uh, thing where he was actually interfering in a match. Uh, Markoff was between Killer Brooks and Tony Marino, uh, and. Uh, the he's being escorted back uh and struck this guy in the chest uh which caused several injuries allegedly including including broken ribs must have must have struck this guy pretty hard <laughs> yes 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 and then i guess eventually ultimately uh the judgment was against him uh, for just because he he never really answered the suit, so they you know I guess they were awarded like what is it four thousand seven hundred dollars. Yeah, the original lawsuit the original lawsuit was for one hundred and fifty five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. uh, they the couple was awarded forty seven fifty eight in damages, but then it also says they tr that the judge transferred the remainder of the suit to Stark County Common Pleas Court. Yeah. Um, and, but also that there were other defendants, that this was the city of Canton who owned the venue, the Memorial Auditorium, and the local promoter who was Vince Risco. Yeah. So I, I don't think we know if anything ever came of the, the rest of that, but uh, Markov was uh, found liable for a little under $5,000. Of course, who knows if he ever paid it or not. That's yeah. another story. Uh, and then you also found an interesting article from several years later, from 1988, where <laughs> the uh, the writer of this article, whose name is Bob Brown, yeah. but almost certainly is not Bulldog Bob Brown. No, he's a Bulldog, uh, is, all right. Is, is writing an article about a wrestling show uh, held by, uh, this was Dale Gagnon, right? Yes. And uh, the, the author of this article came up with a very interesting uh name that uh the cccp on markov's tights stood for so john what did the author say cccp stood for he refers to it as standing for can't control k 
caloric patterns. Oh my goodness! How referring rude. to uh, his, uh, you know, referring to Markov's weight gain. Markov was not very svelte uh, later in his career, I guess. No, 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 no. So that's a uh, you know a little bullying there in the, in the press. You don't like to I, see how, that. No, how mean. So you can't body shame. Yeah. Uh, so again, Markov's one of those guys. I think you know we've all heard the name. We might not be as familiar with him as we are with Waldo von Erich or some of the other main inventors. So of course, John, you curated some YouTube footage. I think you've got you've got five matches of his, oh. and we'll put these together on a playlist. Uh, if you want to list all the matches and then pick one to uh, discuss uh, in you know a little bit of detail, give us a little review of the match, and then just list the other four. Cool. Um, I've got, uh, well, I'll do the, 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 the one I like the most, my favorite one, and the oldest one. This is uh, Chris Markov against Antonio Inoki in Japan, May 16th, 1969. I really wanted to find something, I like to find something from like, early in these guys' careers so you get a good idea of like what the, what, what, was, what was the hubbub about, you know? The young, the young version of the guy. Uh, I found one from '69, uh, and he's got the dyed blonde hair. He's got the '60s wrestler barrel chest type of physique, not jacked, just big. Almost looks like a like a little kid's drawing of a wrestler and from the 1960s. If you're going to draw a wrestler, it would look like Chris Markoff in 1969. He's got the black tights pulled up past his belly button, stomping and pacing before the match. I think Markoff is seconded here by Bobo Brazil, who I think they tagged together a few times on this tour. Uh, Markov attacks Inoki before the bell, chokes him with the towel. Um, Markov has the upper hand for the first five minutes or so, misses a knee drop, Inoki takes over, starts working the leg. I'll tell you, something that really jumped out at me when watching this match was how loud the crowd was. And I don't want to come out as like culturally insensitive, please. Uh, but you always hear like, oh, the Japanese crowds are very polite and quiet. They just clap quietly when they're like, so, so whatever. They seem pretty loud here. Like whenever Inoki would make a comeback or Markov would, you know, get his heat, you'd hear noise in the crowd and the rumbling and see them physically reacting, which I was surprised to see, frankly, in a, a match from Japan in, in 1969. I, I, wonder, um, I wonder if it was more prevalent in the earlier days yeah. of Japanese wrestling. So at this point, it's it's what, not you know, not even less than 20 years in existence yeah. and, and of course the appeal of the japanese versus the the foreigners that that's an yep. easy you know thing to get fans riled up perhaps it's not till later as they started doing more uh japanese wrestlers versus japanese wrestlers that the, that the fans started taking it more you know uh differently re- behaving differently yeah and they back back and forth in and out of the ring uh a bunch uh there's some cool brawling outside the ring where markov nails inoki with the folding chair and one of my favorite things about the old school chair shots with the folding chairs is when the chair is not folded up flat and swung where it's just sort of dropped upside down from above with the seat of the chair perfectly horizontal and the guy said i love that sort of chair shot for some reason um Inoki makes his way back to the ring. Markov is showing off, sort of preying to the crowd. And Inoki drop kicks him, and Markov takes a big bump over the top, sort of falls and runs into the crowd. And I love this shot, especially with the camera work here. It just looks like absolute chaos because you can't see Chris Markov in the crowd, and the crowd is moving around, and all the ring attendants and the uh, the young boys that run over to run over to attend him and stumbles back to the ring. Inoki gets an abdominal stretch. Markov hits him in the leg. And then you see Markov using like a foreign object type thing. And the announcers are yelling at the ref, trying to, you know, you can't see it. And then eventually you do see it. It looks like one of those silver old flat bottle openers. So he's using that. Uh, 
more back and forth. Uh, Inoki mounts a couple of comebacks. Eventually, Markov cuts him off. Inoki gets the upper hand, gets the foreign object away, makes a big comeback, gets him in the octopus hold, sort of like that modified abdominal stretch. Crowd is cheering on their feet. And I guess Markov submits. You don't see him, you know, do, do the I quit or anything. But all the seconds come in the running in the ring. Bell rings. They pull Inoki off, lift Inoki on their shoulders. Baba's in there congratulating him, hugging him, you know, Baba and Inoki hugging, you know. They bandage up Inoki's head as they present him with a trophy. And there's this great scene of his, you know, his bandaged up head and him getting mobbed by the crowd. And this is just a great 20-minute classic babyface versus heel match. I love this match. You could have this match in Japan in 1969. You could have this exact same match in Madison Square Garden in 1955. You could have this match on the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum in 1978. It's that good of a match. If you watch one Chris Markoff match, watch this one. This one is good. Um, Also got Buddy Colt, Chris Markoff uh, versus Eddie Graham, Paul Jones, Florida, May of 73. Well, so Buddy Colt and Markoff versus Eddie Graham and Paul Jones. I think Graham and Buddy Colt have a lot of similarities. Markoff doesn't quite seem like he fits with Colt, and Paul Jones doesn't quite seem like he fits with Graham. So that that's sort of an interesting, uh, not quite two oddball tag teams, but two yeah. non-regular tag teams. And Dick Murdoch is the is a sort of seconding Colt and Markoff here. Just and he is he's involved in the finish. No spoilers. Uh, and I got a. Speaking of Rene Goulet, Sergeant Jacques Goulet and Chris Markoff versus uh, Bret Hart, his second mention on the show, and uh, Chick Donovan to Georgia TV, late 79. Uh, cool to see this combination of guys in the ring, but not not nothing spectacular here, but it's fun to see Bret Hart in 1979. Uh, then I got Markoff and Nikolai Volkov versus Cowboy Young and I think Jack Lincoln. I couldn't really make out the guy's name. Um, I just thought it was cool. I knew Volkov and Markoff teamed in for Crockett around this time, but I, I didn't, I didn't know they worked, worked Knoxville. So this was a fun so little one to discover. Was this, uh, when Blackjack and Flair had Knoxville? It's 81. So. Cause I, I think at one point, I think Crockett might've been running Knoxville. So I'm wondering if that's. That would make sense. Yeah. Let me, uh. I w- I, yeah. I don't have the exact date on it either. So that would. All right, I'm going to do some Googling while you, uh, continue. I'll run down the rest. Uh, nothing, nothing crazy here. Uh, just a basic five-minute TV match. These guys look like a monster tag team. They're wearing those, that had headgear that they did in the early '80s, which I I love. Um, speaking of monster tag teams, this one is really good. Boris Zukov and Chris Markoff versus the Road Warriors in Winnipeg, December 12, 1985. Uh, great promo by the Road Warriors. Watch this for the Road Warriors promo alone. Um, also really interesting to see how much the Road Warriors are selling for Markov and Zukov in this match. I was not expecting them to sell that much for these guys. In fact, Zukov and Markov get the majority of the offense in this match, which is very surprising for the 1985 uh, Road Warriors. Um, you know, this match, it, it's, it's interesting for that fact and the, and, the, and the Road Warriors promo where they're eating turkey and feeding it to Ken Resnick before the match. So I'd recommend that one for this. Uh, but if any, any, any of those matches, I would recommend the, uh, Markov and Noki ones, a spectacular, spectacular 20 minute, 20 minute match. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like, it looks like Volkov and Markov are working for Crockett in October, November, 1981. Uh, so Knoxville is probably something similar to Toronto where it's kind of sort of a satellite 
off oh, okay. and, and maybe in some ways kind of sort of not. Let me take a look at the rest. That was a TV taping that that's from the Volkoff and yeah. Markov versus Cowboy Young and Jack something. Also on that show, uh, Johnny Weaver and Paul Jones teaming up, Ox Baker oh. and oh, yeah. Blackjack Mulligan Jr. So, uh, yeah, but the uh, the prelim guys, Ted Allen, uh, aside from Cowboy Young and whoever his partner was, there's also Ted Allen and Deke Rivers. Uh, so it seems like there's some guys that are only working in Knoxville, uh, but then the, the, the pushed guys are Crockett guys. Oh, interesting. So I'm sure I'm sure if, if Bo James is listening to this, he he will be able to answer that question. Oh, Perhaps please, Ron please Fuller. Do could do that as well. But there you go. There's five matches involving Chris Markoff, including what apparently is a humdinger of a barn burner between Markoff and Inoki from 1969. So again, we will make a playlist and put those up on our YouTube channel. And uh, so, yeah, we learned a little bit about Chris Markoff. We learned he is probably still alive. We learned he was born in Greece and we learned he had a hell of a match against Antonio Inoki. He did, yeah. Uh, these are just some of the many things John and I <laughs> learn every month when we do our uh, research and prep work for this podcast. And in fact, uh, now we're coming up to a segment where both John and I will name one new thing we learned, and it's called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So this might be my first non-wrestling this month I learned. Um, so when researching the, the the pre pro wrestling lives of pro wrestlers on the on the you know, newspaper sites there you'll come across you know high school college all amateur athletics you know wrestling football baseball basketball and sometimes you'll see someone referred to as a a cager or the team referred to as the cagers mm-hmm. um the first time i read this term i was not sure what I, what it meant at first but i was able to figure out pretty easily that it was referring to basketball players in the game of basketball but it never, it didn't really make sense. I was thinking like a batting cage, that would make sense. But a basketball, why, why are you calling this guy a cager? But this month I learned that basketball used to be played inside a cage. Yep. A 12 foot high wire mesh fence set along the end lines and sidelines. And I found like a Sports Illustrated article from 1991 that talks about this a little bit. Like apparently the original rules of basketball back in 1890 or whatever, so that when the ball went out of bounds, the first player who got it could throw it back in. Uh, and I didn't want players fighting in the stands amongst the, the spectators, so they had uh, to get possession of the ball, so they put the little cage there. Um, so with the cage rule, the, the rule was sort of moot because the ball never went out of, mount, out of, out of bounds. Um, it was considered a fair play to drive a fan with the ball into the wire, especially if he was shooting. Uh, when a home team player was thus clobbered, it was not unusual for fans to join the resulting fray. The players entered and left the cage through doors at either end, and fans sometimes fought their way in using the same opening. Uh, the out-of-bounds rule was was changed in 1902 to eliminate sideline scrimmages, but by that time, uh, most of the, the players were, were, were wedded to the cage. Uh, the thinking was that the game was faster and more entertaining in a cage because there were no delays to return the ball to play and because the ball and the players <laughs> could bounce off the, the wire mesh um, rope netting, uh, a cheaper material, soon replaced the wire mesh as the cage material of choice. And many professional teams played in cages until 1925. A few continued using them well into the 30s. So that, that's what I learned this month. 
I wonder if uh, I wonder if a young Ed Farhat uh, ever watched some of these uh, original <laughs> early early basketball games and thought, "I think we're on to something." His brother, um, his other brother, and it, you see this sometime accidentally, and, and Brian Solomon goes into this book because his brother's name was, I think, Edmund. So you'll see there's photos of an Ed Farhat playing basketball in you know Lansing or wherever in Michigan and it's you know people a lot of times people make take that clipping and be like oh here's the young sheik playing basketball but, it was but that's not Ed word it's Edmund ah. <laughs> so it is it is it is feasible but they know? both but they both were ca- were cagers <laughs> they in, were both cagers in, in some way. fashion <laughs> well there you go I, I you know in looking all th- through these old newspaper articles I've seen the term cagers many times and I think at one point I googled you know its origin another word you see I see the sports section all the time that you don't hear nowadays is the word distaff, D-I-S-T-A-F-F, which was a term used to describe women, uh, not describe women, but to, you know, women, a, a word used for women. For example, huh. if there was a women's wrestling match on the card, they'd say, and then it was time for the distaff portion of the card. Huh. As a word I'd never heard before, and I don't even think I know the etymology of it. But yeah, you you know when you read these old newspapers, you you see such different phrasing and wording and uh, used yep. than you do nowadays. It's really quite the culture shock. Now, it, it, it really, yep, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's it's it's yes, it's a completely different style of writing. Oh, indeed. Uh, yep. There there was more prose. There was more you know elegance. In yeah. the writing, as opposed to the the just the facts, ma'am, yeah. Uh, yeah, of yeah. today's writing. Now, as for me, as most listeners know, I worked uh, as a manager in independent pro wrestling for over a decade. First as the Duke of New York, and then as Al Getz. One of the companies I worked for regularly was Southern States Wrestling, based in East Tennessee and run by our our friend Bo James. They are still running shows, and the next Southern States Wrestling show. On February 18th in Kingsport, Tennessee, is the 32nd anniversary of the promotion. And as part of that show, they're inducting a new class into their Hall of Fame. This month, I learned that on February 18th in Kingsport, Tennessee, I, Al Getz, the Duke of New York, will be inducted into the Southern States Wrestling East Tennessee Hall of Fame. Wow. Congratulations. And my mom said this wrestling stuff was never going to work out for me. <laughs> well, look at me now, Mama. I'm in the Hall of Fame, or I will yeah. become February 18th, along with the tag team of Death and Destruction, Frank Parker and Roger Anderson. Uh, they were a great tag team. Uh, this was at a time when the guys in the Southeast really didn't get a lot of opportunities in other places. But Frank is probably most infamous for being on one of the first TNA pay-per-views as the opponent of Cheeks. Do you remember Cheeks? I don't remember Cheeks. Who's Cheeks? Okay, Cheeks was a very large uh, black man with a very large butt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Would I know him by any other names, or is it just Cheeks? Um, He, I, I... I, he he worked indies around Virginia uh, and the Carolinas. Uh, his real name is Mike Staples. I I forget the name he worked at, but I I think he was a student of Boogies. I think he was a student of Jimmy Valiant's. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, he he uh, in two thousand and two on TNA's second show, uh, Cheeks 
wrestled his one and only <laughs> match for the promotion, <laughs> beating Parker and uh, never came back again. Oh. I could see now that you meant like I could see him at the at the boogie training Rolling camp. Thunder. Rolling Thunder was the name uh, I knew him as on the Indies. Ah, I, I could see I could see boogie. Landing to Jimmy Valiant, like uh, naming him Cheeks. You know, I could I, I could see that whole conversation. I could see him pointing at him. I and, like, don't think Boogie came up with the name. Really? I, I think huh. uh, much like what? What did the Shane brothers wrestle as in in TNA? Oh Jesus! Uh, they had a name that, that referenced the the male sexual organ, didn't they? <laughs> and this was a TNA. This was a TNA thing. Mike and Todd Shane. Uh, Maybe maybe I'm misremembering. Oh, they were. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dick Johnson and Rod Johnson. Ah. Yes. <laughs> so it, it seems like this was a, I guess, a Jarrett uh, concoction, or a Bob, <laughs> perhaps a Bob Ryder concoction. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and 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 perhaps I may. Uh, dust off the old Duke of New York uniform and, and see if I can find any talents worthy of my managerial services during Ooh. the show as well. Oh. What's the date on this again? This is February 18th. This, this show will be after our next episode comes out. Okay. Who do you have someone inducting you who is doing that? Or is I or is have no idea. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think so. Uh, no one's asked me. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think they can afford to bring in you know William Shatner. I was going to say, yeah. Was, uh... <laughs> I'm trying. To, who would who who would I get? Who could I get? I don't even know. I mean, obviously, Bo is the person there that knows me the best, but uh, that's probably not going to work since he's running the show and and doing all that. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to get someone I work with a lot, somebody like Carino, you know, to induct me uh, in Georgia. Somebody like Jeff G. Bailey, who was another manager from NWA yeah. Wildside, just to hear his speech, because you give that man a microphone and you're going to have to hide the kids and lock up your daughters. <laughs> is uh, is Bo James at at the the Hall of Fame? Is it like Vince during the WWE Hall of Fame where you can't mention his name? You're not allowed to thank him? Is it that sort of deal? I, have, I, I haven't been given a list of rules. And I, I assure okay. you, anyone that knows me knows giving me a list of rules is the worst that, thing you can do. That, uh, if, you want, if you want me to break the rules, the, the <laughs> one thing you shouldn't do, the one thing you should do is give me a list of rules that will guarantee <laughs> that I will break them all. I, I don't know. It's going to be great to see um, Frank and Roger. I haven't seen in probably 15 years since oh, wow. uh, some of the, the, the benefit memorial shows we did for Brian Hildebrand in the uh, mid aughts. So yeah, it's probably been about 15 years since I've been there. And of course this will be the first in ring appearance of the Duke of New York in yeah. at least that amount of time. Will there, are you aware of a way for listeners uh, to, 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 to view of the proceedings, either, either live or after yes. the fact. Yes. Uh, okay. Buy a plane ticket to the tri cities <laughs> of Tennessee and go to the show. Uh, certainly, not, there, I don't believe there will be a live broadcast of this. No live uh, perhaps this will be filmed for uh, later airing or distribution. Otherwise, of course, if I hear anything about that, I will. I will let everybody know because I, I, I have a feeling you're going to want to see this induction ceremony. You're going to want to hear my speech. Let's just leave it at that. Oh dear. So Whew. yeah, that's uh, well. I'll, I'll probably have more information uh, next month. 
on the podcast, because like I said, we'll be recording it and releasing it before February 18th. But uh, you heard it here first. I actually think by the time this episode uh, reaches the airwaves, Southern States Wrestling is going to announce it. I think they're announcing it uh, Monday or Tuesday, January 16th or 17th. We're recording this episode on Sunday, January 15th, and it'll be out on Thursday the 19th. So there you go. Nice. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm excited. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, uh, it's neat to be acknowledged and recognized of a uh, several year long reign of terror in independent (laughs) wrestling rings in fall branch, Kingsport, Johnson city, uh, and the surrounding areas of East Tennessee. I also know on February 18th, there's going to be an appearance by Ron Fuller at the show. Oh, wow. I think they said it's going to be his first appearance in Kingsport in over 35 years. That's wild. And I, and, and I'll say this, if he uh, wants to get involved in a, if I'm going to be managing somebody and Ron Fuller wants to get involved, it might be his last appearance in Tennessee. Jesus, Al. What? Wow. I don't cheese. I'll, I'll, I'll knock an old man out. I don't care. Oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> huh. So there you go. That's, uh, that's it for this month. On Charting the Territories, uh, our first episode of the new year. Of course, our blog is at chartingtheterritories.com, where you can see a year in the life, a unique data-driven look at 1971 in Leroy McGurk's territory, featuring stats and data points that you will not find anywhere else. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search for Charting the Territories on YouTube. You can go to payhip.com slash charting the territories to download a PDF of the year in the life and get a full page, full color version of the uh, infographic, the territory fact sheet featuring all the unique stats, charts, and maps that we talked about earlier. And if you want to learn more about Leroy McGurk's territory in the early 1970s, you can check out my book, The Leroy McGurk. 1971 to 1973, Wrestling Almanac, available on Amazon and at chartingtheterritories.com. You can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And now that I've plugged everything again, John, I'm going to let you plug some stuff if you have anything to plug. I just, I would love, love for you guys to follow me on Twitter. Uh, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Follow me there. What's your what's your follower count up to these days? I know a while back we were both racing to get to two thousand. Let's see where I am as of as of recording, as of this very moment. You are at oh you're at uh twenty ten. Twenty ten. Yeah, that was a good year. (laughs) It might have been the last time I was in Kingsport, Tennessee. (laughs) So yeah, that's that's where I'm I'm hovering. It's 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 sort of a. You know what's next? The what's what's the next milestone? Ten thousand. Ten. Well, that's a that's a wow. That's a, a big a big goal from two thousand to ten thousand. Let's so get you, you there. Okay, let's do it. So next month on our podcast, which will come out the third Thursday of February, it's going to be the first time that the main focus of our podcast isn't McGurk centric. We're going to continue our A Year in the Life series by looking at another territory in 1971. And listeners, you might need your passport for this one because we're heading north to Canada to take a look at Stampede Wrestling in 1971. Abdullah the Butcher, Les Thornton, A Box of Birds, Carlos Belafonte, who you know 
by a different last name, mm-hmm. Emile Dupre, Black Angus Campbell, and a whole lot more. Again, next month's episode will be released on the third Thursday of the month. And to be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, I expect an announcement from you next month that you're going to be inducted into some <laughs> Hall of Fame somewhere. you got to keep up with me. I got 2,000 followers. You got 2,000 followers. So now I'm going into a Hall of Fame. You need to go into a Hall of Fame. Okay, I'll... Uh, and you got one month to do it. This is... You know, I, I finally... This month, I finally... I've I, I, I stopped being stressed about the Gordon Sully trivia, and I've, I've, I've sort of... I feel like I'm confident enough with that now, or I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... I'm, so we'll I'm doing have a well. Hall, we'll have a Hall of Fame for champions, Gordon Sully's championship wrestling <laughs> trivia game players. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could. Maybe I could see if I can get that started in this okay. month. Okay. Well, well, we will work on that, and and uh, listeners, we will update you next month right here <laughs> on charting the territories. See you next month with the box of birds. <laughs>